0: Okay, so I've put on the board a question, and I'm hoping you've had a little bit of time to consider it. So in your conversion experience, was allegiance, uh, did it play a role (laughs) as you came to faith in Christ? I know for most of us uh, the gospel was presented in such a way that it was a matter of repenting of our sin, trusting in God's provision through the death and resurrection of Christ uh, whereby he bore our sin, we're trusting him and God then reconciles us to himself through his son but was there an element of allegiance yes Derek
1: I would say I was really too young to even understand what that word meant mm-hmm. but through the years looking back on it I can say yes and it was implicit and not explicit
0: and tell me a little bit more
1: so I remember I was six sitting in the back of the church on a Sunday night and just the spirit got a hold of my heart and I didn't want to be on the outside I wanted to be in God's presence and I wanted to be a part of that so the allegiance wasn't necessarily I want to be allegiance to Christ it was more the to the negative I didn't want to be on the outside as much as I really understood it's not that I wanted that it's that I didn't want the other thing Mm -hmm. and that as I grew and matured in my belief and my understanding and my faith that's where I began to understand more through the process and looking back on it I understand that it was implied more than that was not my driving focus but I began to realize that that was part of that uh, transformation
0: Thank you Okay, did anyone have <clears throat> have a, a conversion experience in which your allegiance to Christ was more explicit Anybody want to speak to that? Yes, I was in. saved as
2: a young child, too, at six. And um, mine wasn't so much like repenting and crying of sins at age six. It was more like, your best friend is Jesus. He's going that way. You want to go with him. Oh, <laughs> and yes. so that's kind of my, more of my experience.
0: Okay. Repentance
3: um, is, re- is a term, which would be... Uh, a changing of direction mm-hmm. in your life, so that would mm-hmm. be. Uh, 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 to me, it, it falls underneath what your question says
0: here. I okay. Think. okay, so especially for any of us who came to faith in Christ as a as adults, probably. Conversion, repentance, trust. Um, would be more explicit rather than implicit. But if we come to faith as children, then maybe not as much, although Beverly kind of has a different uh, perspective on that. Mike? Well,
4: I think came to faith as a child, too, but there's a time when I got older and more rational where it was probably very explicit because like, faith is based on reason, not on emotion. That's just how I'm driven. No, I'm not a very empathetic person or anything like that, but this makes sense. This is the only thing that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think that would be allegiance and very explicit. Yeah, I, I would say
3: that there's two words <laughs> I think of. And uh, as a child, when I was younger, the word to accept something that I was taught. As I grew older, God brought me to the point where I actually be, didn't just accept, but believed getting on to what Mike is saying about, it was more emotional younger, uh, and then more into the mind later as I came to believe it. So I can't, I don't even know the point in which I actually crossed the line from unbelief to true belief. I, it was, I think it was more gradual. And I was raised, in, I was raised in a denomination where they said, boy, it happens instantly at, uh, in a church meeting that, boom, you were lost and now you're saved. And so, but to me, I would relate to what everyone has said. Acceptance and true belief.
0: Stasik, did you want to say something?
3: Yeah, if I can. Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, When I I became a believer, I was 22, and I I grew up Catholic. So I was very aware of my sinfulness, Mm. and I was trying to kind of deceive God uh, through all my life. Like, give him a little bit, but and keep enough for me to enjoy the life. <laughs> and uh, when, I, when I finally understood the gospel, and I was touched by the love, the, the unconditional love that, that is communicated through the gospel that, that God has for us, so uh, I I kind of said something like this in my heart, and this was the, the ultimate kind of form of being a legion to Christ is becoming a priest or a missionary somewhere in Africa. (laughs) So I said, Lord, if it takes it that I will become a priest or even go to Africa, I still want, I I want, I want you, I want to be with you. So this was the the kind of, you know, allegiance. But I also have to say that this hurt me a little bit later uh, because I tended later in life to focus too much on what I can do for God what is my allegiance to him versus how much I need his grace and how in, incapable of really being anything useful for God that I am. So so that, that's uh, kind of the, the other side of the coin. <laughs> there was a strong element of allegiance, but this can sometimes cause dependence on our effort later in life. And I think I suffered from that a Good later. Thank
0: you. Um, How would you answer that? Oh, I just asked the (laughs) (laughs) question. You're not supposed to ask. I I agree with Derek. In my experience, allegiance to Christ was more implicit, and I I think I've shared with you, I was thinking Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I knew who Jesus was, I knew what he had done, and I was talking to the Lord saying, I don't want the death part, I want the eternal life part in Christ. And his, and I'm not talking lordship, I'm talking allegiance at this point. But I knew that, that I was beholding, and it, it became much clearer as I grew older. Um,
4: That's probably true with
0: all of us. Mm-hmm. Really? mm-hmm,
4: yes. Yep. You know, Ken, I was thinking that, um, I, I think most of us kind of have that, like you say, implicit view of allegiance, and then there comes that time in your life where it comes down to a line where you have to, mm-hmm. you know, choose to stand for what you say your allegiance is for mm-hmm. and what it's not. And I was thinking about Peter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as far as, as far as his mind, his mind, he had that allegiance. But when it came down to it, he realized that he was weak. And of course, he didn't, it, it changed him knowing that. But you know, we may not always pass the first test either. But that's the, there's always a difference between until you're tested. May, you may have every intention of having that allegiance, but the experiential is what really, you know, like Christ said, you know, he, he denies me before men, when it comes down to that point, and
1: that's where the allegiance becomes real. Praise God for makeup exams. Yes,
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh-huh. Thank you, Andy. Okay, I want to talk to you about content, setting, and purpose, and then uh, Georgina and I, we're, we're looking for a drum roll because we will, Lord willing, start Revelation 1 today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
4: uh,
0: okay, so let's talk about the content. The content of, of the revelation to John is stated in the prologue, and then it's restated in the epilogue the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, interesting phrase, we'll talk about that in months down the road when we get to 22, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So he's telling us the content. He's going to He's going to reveal the things that must soon take place. He gave a revelation of his Son through which he would show to his church, the recipients, the future yet soon events which will finish the divine determined plan for the world in Christ. This message enables the church to prepare for the second coming of Christ, that is, to heed the prophecy. The setting setting of the book may be surmised from the spiritual condition of the seven churches, as manifested in the Lord's commendations and correctives. <laughs> so, if, if we're looking for a, a, histori- a historical setting of the book, all you all we need to do is is look at the uh, the condition of the churches, and that tells us something of the of the setting uh, because uh, John uh, or rather the Lord Jesus addressed them and John wrote it down for us. The churches were functioning within the culture of the Roman province of Asia with its amalgamation of religions, philosophies and ethnic peoples. There was social pressure placed upon them to participate as good citizens in the pagan festivals. For the supposed blessing from the gods and goddesses. Uh, you've heard it said that early Christians were sometimes accused um, of being atheists. Because they wouldn't countenance all of the many gods and goddesses of the Roman world. Okay, you know They would say they were non-atheists, but the other people would say, No, you're atheists. You don't believe in our gods. The Revelation to John calls its readers and hearers to a radical disassociation from structured evil, says Bauckham. Bauckham wrote a major work on Revelation. I think his eschatology is a little bit askew, but he's a fine scholar and he has great insight. And I think he's right on target here. The Revelation to John calls its readers a radical dissociation from structured evil. So let's ask the question how might we pursue a radical dissociation from structured evil? What would it look like? Is this a group activity or is this more individual? Yes.
3: Is this what we heard about in the sermon today?
0: Should this be a proactive, organized effort, or is it more a reactive effort? What do you think? Maybe all of the above. Okay. Uh, It can be. It can be group. It can be individual. Uh, Sometimes we stand better when we're side by side with brothers and sisters uh, again, I'm an old promise keepers guy. Um, back to back, shoulder to shoulder, <laughs> standing together. Uh, you bet, you bet, brothers in Christ, holding each other up. Uh, but it, begins
3: individually.
0: it has to be individual, doesn't it? Uh, we have to, uh, we have to stand on our mountain. <clears throat> yeah. I think
1: it shows. Great fortitude, and it encourages others to do the same thing. It, like you said, you brought hand to hand, brother to brother. But when we see when you when you stand up and you say, "I belong to the Lord," other people will say, will. "I belong to the Lord," yes. "I belong to the Lord," yes. and then you have a, a an outcry of people saying,
0: "I belong to the Lord." Yes. Yes. Yeah, and
3: it's sort of what this afternoon's service will be about. He mentioned promise keepers, and no one more than Steve Farrar personified mm-hmm. what you're just talking about—men standing together—and then in the latter half of his ministry, you know, standing on the promises, on the the uh, providence of God. Mm-hmm. And Steve's life is just what you're talking about. Yep. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen.
0: Okay, this evil was not external only, but also internal. The Lord Jesus disapproves of certain groups and individuals in the churches. So he'll refer to the Nicolaitans. He'll refer to a Jezebel, to those who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who compromise and corrupt the saints with idolatry and immorality. These matters will not be unlike the forced corruption of the people of the world under the Antichrist with his false prophet and the great harlot so looking at the condition of the churches the lord jesus addresses those conditions and he tries to get the the churches back into a disassociation from evil into a sanctified fellowship with himself and with god the father and when people do that they're ready for the tribulation okay they're ready Well, they're ready for the return of Christ and and for service to Christ. Okay. The content of the Revelation to John concerns the things which must soon take place. The imminent end-of-the-world events enacted by men, the devil, and God. The setting of the Revelation to John was the active presence of pagan corruption, both within and outside the church. The purpose was to protect and preserve the church from these idolatrous philosophies and practices, and to prepare it to be steadfast in the present time and in the coming days of the great tribulation. In other words, the believers, uh, the contemporary believers with John, according to the dating that I'm following at the end of the first century, they were to be prepared to stand for Christ in their day. But given the fact that this revelation uh, endured and survived and could go on and and be kept uh, for a future generation, Lord willing, people in the tribulation will have the revelation to bolster them and uh, to solidify their faith in Christ and say, okay, now we know what's going on. This revelation about Jesus Christ is God's final disclosure given to the church about its Savior, the Lord and Judge of the world. Okay, so let me give you just a simple outline of the first chapter. John introduces the divine revelation about Christ to the churches. So we've got the book's purpose. We've got a vision. um, The amanuensis is identified, John himself. He pronounces a blessing. He sets the stage for the reception of the message. John also records a vision of Christ, Lord of the churches, and his messages to them. So that would go on chapters 2 and 3 as well as the balance of chapter 1. He appears as the authoritative and triumphant Lord of the churches. And there are some sub points. I don't think I need to get there. All right, here we go. Revelation 1, 1. Open your Bibles to Revelation 1, 1.
2: So
1: now we're finished with the introduction? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. best introduction.
0: <laughs> it, long enough. Was it long enough? It was yeah. wonderful. Yes. Okay. Not
1: necessary.
0: Now, notice the first five words. The revelation of Jesus Christ. No other book in the Bible starts this way. Now, we have Gospels. And if if you want to leave your finger in Revelation and turn to Mark 1, notice how Mark starts his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is the only gospel writer that identifies his writing as a gospel, okay? And gospel really wasn't even a technical term when he used that term in the beginning of his gospel. But here in the book of the Revelation to John, We've got five English words: the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I'll talk to you. There are three Greek words: apokalypsis, Iesou Christou, an uncovering. So Freiburg in his Greek lexicon would would identify the um, the apocalypse as an uncovering or a disclosing or a revealing of Jesus Christ. Now I, I looked at a commentary yesterday, and he dwelt on this. Uh, word just for a little uh, time, the apa is, uh, the A-P-O uh, is a preposition, and it means from or away from, and the loopsus would be a releasing, so it's a releasing from or of something. In other words, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus is very, very manifest. His His quality and character, his person is very, very manifest in heaven, but we don't see in heaven. And so what happens in the revelation uh, to John is that heaven opens and John sees him. He sees the vision of who Jesus is. So it's an uncovering. Uh, it's a releasing of what's, of what's hiding Jesus uh, from the rest of us. Now, the phrase can, can either be considered a title or perhaps a summary statement for the book um, It makes known things about Christ That were previously veiled People often read the Revelation to John To gain a better understanding of the end times We do, don't we? And we read the Olivet Discourse And we read uh, First and Second Thessalonians um, We read... Daniel, we read Isaiah, we, you know, all of the prophets, we, we read them to get a better idea of what's happening on our world uh, and, uh, and with our world. If, however, notice, if the first clause, these five English words rightly identify the contents, then readers and students ought to pursue first and foremost a better understanding of Jesus. Because the book is about him. And we will see Jesus in the book of Revelation like we don't see him anywhere else in the scriptures. Glenn? The English word of can be interpreted as being that this is an uncovering of jesus or it could be that jesus is uncovering something else namely things to happen in the latter times Mm
2: -hmm.
0: so is there anything in the greek that helps us Mm -hmm. to know whether this is the uncovering of jesus that is he is being revealed or that jesus is doing the revealing? yes and your question anticipates what i'm going to talk about in a few slides hold your thought great question <clears throat> okay now there is no article in this opening phrase all right so we would call it anarthrous. Um do we then translate it a revelation of jesus christ as if there were others and this is not the revelation of jesus christ Um, Or do we supply the article and translate the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Wallace, who teaches at at DTS, uh, wrote his Greek grammar beyond the basics. And it's it's very helpful in terms of having studied Greek. Now, how do we use the Greek to understand the meaning that's implied by what we see in the text? And he affirms, okay, now this will get a little bit technical. But we won't stay here too long. But he affirms that a substantive, a noun, can be indefinite. So apocalypsis, okay? That noun, this um, this apocalypse, this unveiling, um, can be indefinite or definite without the article present. Oh, really? That's interesting. That in Greek, they didn't need the article for a phrase or for a noun to be Particular? That's interesting. Oh. Okay, so when the substantive is anarthrous, that is, the article is not present, the revelation, when the is not there, you can have one of three forces. Either it is indefinite, one member of a class, or it's qualitative, emphasizing the kind, the essence, the nature, the quality, or it's definite, which lays stress on the individual identity. Now, the big question is how do we know? okay well grammarians have to make a choice and you make a choice based on context you make a you make a choice based on what the author is is doing with what he's writing now Wallace continues and an anarthrous noun may be definite if it is a proper noun the object of a preposition with an ordinal number if a predicate nominative if a complement in an object complement construct i mean he's given us a number of options here right okay if a monadic noun one of kind. if it's an abstract okay abstract noun okay there's our asterisk that now we know okay so apocalypse a christu could be and probably should be the revelation of jesus christ it's an uh, because apocalypsis... Is abstract.
1: I hope he's not going to do this for every word. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, now, sister.
0: (laughs) Oh, my. Okay, so since the phrase seems to serve as a title for the work, And revelation is an abstract noun. The phrase ought to be understood as definite. The revelation about Jesus Christ, which emphasizes its individual identity among other revelations or apocalypses. So, again, as I would see this, as as we open this book, the, The Revelation to John, we are looking at the crowning revelation of the son of God we're looking at the the epitome uh, uh, disclosure of the epitome person Uh, this is the best of the best Uh, when Christ when Christ's deity was veiled at his incarnation we didn't know what we missed There were evidences of it. The gospel writers, you know, they gave us many, many evidences of the glory. And and John tells us, uh, full of grace and truth. But we didn't see all that he is because he was in flesh. The name Jesus Christ. Okay, now, this goes, Glenn, to your comment And guess what? I'm going to stop right there. We're going to come back and pick this up. I want to give uh, Sixto uh, time to pray uh, in our behalf. Uh, So I'm going to stop there. We're going to pick this up. Uh, We're in Revelation 1-1. Okay? (laughs)